All right, good evening, everybody. Uh, you do have another minute or so, but so that we get started on time, I thought I'd introduce myself a little bit. I know most, I know most faces here, so I figure most of you know me. My name is Jonathan Brodefense, and I've been a member at Faith for about five years now. Uh, five years ago, I got out of the Navy, and we were stationed in Bangor, Washington. I was on a nuclear-powered submarine as a reactor operator. And although I'm grateful for my time in the Navy, I also wouldn't wish the Navy on a lot of people. <laughs> so, uh, but grateful for the experience I got there so I could get the awesome job that I absolutely love. Moved down here and have it give us the ability to homeschool our four children. Uh, my wife and our kids, they are uh, out of town. My two oldest girls are at a Lutheran summer camp in Oklahoma, and she's got the Littles with family in Arkansas, so they're not here tonight. So, uh, we will be in 2 Kings chapter 5, it's page 311 in these Bibles, and while you're turning to that, I want to take a second, and I want you to ponder something. Think about who you are, and of course that's an open-ended question, right? So you're a Christian, you're, a lot of you, parents, father, uh, mother, spouse, co-worker, maybe you're an employer, maybe you're retired, and we can talk a long time about the vocation of being retired and uh, what that's supposed to look like as a Christian. Is what? <laughs> yeah. He's grinning over here about being retired. Yeah. <laughs> So in any of those categories, uh, oh, and also maybe an American, you know, maybe you could put something other than like your, your direct influence in the world around you. But in one of those categories, ask yourself, who do you hate? Right? <laughs> so like, as an American, okay, maybe like Osama bin Laden could go back to 9-11. And, you know, I was, uh, I was in eighth grade at the time. So, of course, you know, there's lots going on, and uh, um, I remember when I heard that Osama bin Laden was killed by Navy SEALs, I'm pretty sure I cheered, right? Like, when you put it like that, it, it doesn't sound like the most Christian thing, right, to cheer at the death of another person. Um, Here's one more lighthearted on Easter Sunday. <laughs> I was driving home, had a Easter hymn in my mind, my kids in the van, my wife was actually driving with her, her parents behind us, so it was just me and the kids, and this truck, pickup truck, pulls out behind a, uh, out of a gas station, and we live out by Taylor, so I'm on Route 29, it's 60, it's a 60, and I don't like the speed a whole lot, especially after having kids. But this truck accelerates to like 47. He's not even going 50. He's going more than 10 miles under the speed limit. That doesn't hurt my feelings. I don't care. But there are a few cars behind me at this point. So I say, okay, if I'm going to be behind him for like 20 miles, I should find a place to safely pass him. So sure enough, a long stretch open passing zone. I put my signal on like you should get in the left lane. And as soon as I start going around him, he guns it, and the next thing I know, I'm like, why am I not passing him? He's going 75. So I get back over, and I just let him go, although he slows back down to like 60. 
I'm like, who does this? You know, in that moment, I probably didn't want to invite him to church. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the Bible is full of these things called imprecatory songs. And sometimes, I think as modern Christians, they make us uncomfortable reading about how David is asking God to destroy his enemies. And it's easy to spiritualize it and just say, like, yeah, the last enemy to be destroyed is death and sin. Okay, that's fair. But, you know, they're also legitimate prayers. Now, first, of course, we pray that all people, including Osama bin Laden, should have or would repent and hear the gospel and turn to Christ and live. It would have been a fantastic story. But we can also legitimately pray that God would snuff out evil in the world. That doesn't mean we pray that anybody go to hell, but we can legitimately pray for God to bring his divine and righteous justice and judgment upon a people or a person who is doing wicked things to innocent people. So keep that in mind uh, as we go through this, this story. You know, you could also think of David and Goliath. Right, so yes, Goliath had a chance to repent. <laughs> he did not. So we rightly cheer when David cuts off his head. You know, uh, makes us uncomfortable a little bit, but the imprecatory psalms are legitimate prayers, even though we first, of course, share the gospel, show the love of Christ, and ask that they turn to Christ and live. All right, for Second Kings chapter 5. Starting at verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. Now, Syria, uh, in a different translation, you might see Aram. Uh, so if you read this story later in Hebrew, it is Aram, and that was the name of that area at the time. But it is the area like of Damascus, so you know most translations go with Syria. Uh, so commander of the army of the king of Syria, a general, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him, the Lord, that's the Lord in all caps, this is the divine name, Yahweh. So the Lord had given victory to Syria. So the Lord gave victory to this pagan foreign general, to a pagan foreign nation. What's going on there? Well, this should remind us that God is active in the entire world. Right? Most commentators will say that this uh, is most likely a victory of Syria over Assyria, <laughs> a different empire at the time, the empire that will eventually come and conquer the Israelites and cart them off into uh, the northern kingdom that is into exile. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Being a leper, so again, if we're going to be an ancient Israelite reading this story, there's more than just having a skin disease. And this can, this could be a number of different diseases. So leprosy today we know as a specific, right, it's a specific uh, disease. And but back then, you know, they, they didn't have microscopes and they couldn't tell you this is the bacteria, this and this is, you know. So this bacteria for us is leprosy, but this could be a range of diseases. Either way, it made you unclean. 
And being spiritually or ritually unclean wasn't necessarily sinful and wasn't necessarily a moral failure. For example, and we'll talk about this later, uh, birth. <laughs> right? Birth, I was present for all four of my children's birth. It was very messy. And I understand why, like, if I was an ancient Israelite, that would ritually make me unclean. Right? You go through a period of purification, and it's after that. It's also a period of reflection, and then you can go back into the temple or the tabernacle for worship. But he's this pagan general, and he's a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So this little servant girl gets conquered. Her area in northern Israel gets conquered. It doesn't say by Naaman, but I'm assuming, right? He's the commander of the army. Carries her off as a slave, so keep that in mind. Working for Naaman's wife. Um, verse 3. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So this little girl, uh, I think, would have many legitimate reasons to be praying some imprecatory psalms. To pray that God would bring down his divine justice and vindicate her as a faithful little girl serving the Lord. You know, but she, she doesn't do this. And here's, here's another thing to think about, right? We said that the Lord gave victory to Naaman. What if, because this was my first thought, what if that victory was that victory over northern Israel? That God, in his plan for this whole story, you can assume, I mean, any time that Israel gets conquered, it's because they've fallen away from God. You know, God is slow to anger, but he, um, so he's slow to anger, but it does say, and again, sometimes this makes us uncomfortable, God even raises up the Assyrians. He raises up the Babylonians to come and conquer Israel and Judah as part of his, uh, you know, not just in bringing his, we read it, judgment. It could also kind of be read justice, to bring justice, and then to discipline his people. So two things can be true at the same time. God can declare his righteous judgment or justice upon a person or a group of people to stop their wickedness, and he can show mercy and spare a righteous remnant. But even if he doesn't, right, even if the faithful get swept away in that justice, we can still rejoice because in the end Christ lives. So like if we were all vaporized in nuclear war, <laughs> and uh, we can still rejoice because God's going to raise us from the dead. I think a good way to think about this, you know, there's Daniel. The book of Daniel is one of my favorite books in the Bible. But Daniel and Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego are very, very faithful to God. Yet, their land was conquered and they were carted off as slaves. Right? God raised up Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Judah and cart them off as slaves. 
where they then become incredible witnesses, just like this little girl. And when Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego are before Nebuchadnezzar, and they refuse to bow down to the big chocolate bunny, if, you're, uh, if you've seen the Veggie Tales, <laughs> actually the golden statue, right? But they have my favorite confession of faith, which is, King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. You know, we have no need to answer you because our God has the power to save us. But even if he doesn't, and he chooses in his divine judgment to let you throw us into this fire and kill us, we still won't worship your stupid God. You know, so that's the kind of faith that they had. And then Jesus was with them in the fire. And that's a long story. But I think the King James translation gets that one right. It, it was a. Uh, it was the Son of God in the fire with them. All right, verse, where were we? Verse uh, four. So Naaman, he hears this good news, and he went in and tells his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. So his master, the king of Syria, uses this as an opportunity for diplomacy. And I read this as, at face value. Uh, Syria and Israel are constantly fighting. Several chapters before this, they were fighting. Several, several chapters after this, they were fighting. But the king of Syria recognizes this as a time to keep the peace because it seems like they are sort of, at least, in a time of no war, to grease the skids for Naaman and to uh, use this for an opportunity to give him a big old gift, you know, thanks to the taxpayers of Syria. So uh, it's a lot of money. A talent, a talent was generally thought to be about 75 pounds, so 10, ten talents of silver if you do the math, comes out to be spot price of silver right now is 23.4 ounces. So a little over $28,000. Now I think today there's a larger difference between the price of gold and silver. But anyway, a shekel can be estimated to be 12 grams. Gold right now is just a hair under two grand an ounce. So this would be over $5 million. And then the clothes, although the clothes are, uh, they were expensive back then. I think that's more of a show of good faith. So how is the king going to, uh, to take this? Verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you, or sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see that he is seeking a quarrel with me. So this is, uh, it doesn't say it here, but this is King Joram. He was a bad king. And he had, just a few chapters before this, he had seen Elisha give victory to his army and the army of Judah over the Edomites, and I think the, the Midianites, I'd have to look it up. But either way, Elisha then, when the armies are, um, 
They're thirsty in the wilderness. And where have we heard this before? <laughs> Elisha miraculously provides water in the wilderness where they're camping to the armies. And actually what Elisha tells Joram is, look, I'm not doing this because of you. I'm doing this because the king of Judah is actually faithful. All right, so you should listen up and learn. And um, so Joram has seen God personally provide for him miraculously. And the ironic thing here is he's quoting Deuteronomy 32. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later as well. But he had seen God, yet he has this almost willful, blatant disbelief. And he's convinced that the king of Syria is going to use this, like, well, of course the king can't heal Naaman miraculously, and use it as an excuse for war. But somebody intercedes, and that ends up being Elisha. So verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. I think it's a little curious that their first thought wasn't to send Naaman to the priests. In the Mosaic laws, the priests are the ones who take care of the skin diseases. They take care of the purification, declaring you unclean, and then declaring you clean again once it's healed up. So you take your skin disease, generically called leprosy, and basically they examine you to see if it's more than skin deep. And if it's deeper, you know, than skin level, and you're not getting better, you may even have to go and live outside of the camp. So Leviticus was written before they were in the land of Canaan, when the Israelites were still um, in the wilderness. Actually, most of Leviticus takes place at Mount Sinai. So you were sent outside of the camp, and I find this really, really interesting. Uh, if you were unclean living outside of the camp, and you got better, you would come present yourself to the priests. And the process then of declaring you clean again, it required this little sacrifice. So they took two birds, and one bird they sacrificed over a bowl of water. Now this may sound weird, but there's a lot of imagery here. So they sacrifice it over the bowl of water, and you have this watery, bloody mix. We read something last night as well where, you know, you had blood and water, right? And then you take the second bird and you dip it in the bloody watery mix and you let it go and it flies away. <laughs> so there's another sacrifice in the Old Testament where you take two goats, and this is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And one goat is sacrificed and the high priest, and only the high priest, this is the only time in the year where he gets to go behind the curtain. He gets to go into the Holy of Holies, and he takes the blood of that sacrifice, and he sprinkles it on the Ark of the Covenant. And this is the once-a-year atonement for all the sins of all the people. The other goat sort of just gets sent into the wilderness. So they place their hands on it, and sort of like they put the sin in the goat, and they send it away into the wilderness. So you have these two birds, one sacrifice, one let go, two goats, and I think an Old Testament Israelite, any time they're thinking leprosy, and they might be thinking, why wasn't 
Naaman sent to the priests. They, you know, all these other things come with it, right? If you know your Old Testament, all these things come with it. We might think of Jesus before Pilate, where you have Barabbas, which ironically means son of the father. And in later manuscripts, they put his first name in there, which was also Yeshua or Jesus. So church tradition says you have Jesus, son of God the Father Almighty, God in the flesh. And then you have Jesus, son of the Father, a murderer. Yet he gets let go and Jesus takes his, his place. So for what that is, import all of that into the way you would normally handle leprosy. But Elisha isn't a priest. He's a prophet. So they come to Elisha. So verse 8, or sorry, no, verse 9. Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Alright, so Naaman, we're about to see he's expecting some pomp and circumstance. So Elisha doesn't even come out. He sends a servant. Of course, Elisha, right, he's like at the time, the prophet of God. He does quite a few miracles. Uh, so he's listening to God and following uh, what God's telling him to do. But Naaman, as we'll find out, is expecting something a little greater. But if you're an ancient Israelite reading this text, there's loads of symbolism in the Jordan. You had, last night, we talked about the Red Sea and how the people, they were slaves in Egypt and they get baptized through Moses through the Red Sea and they're no longer slaves. Just like we were slaves to sin and were baptized through uh, the name of Jesus, which connects us to his death and resurrection and we're no longer slaves to sin. So they no longer slaves in Egypt, we're no longer slaves in sin. But we're still in the wilderness, right? Um, the Jordan, then, is the next place where the next generation is going to have their Red Sea moment as they're sort of baptized through the Jordan into the land of Canaan. But we also talk about, just like we'll see the king here, King Jorman, or Joram, he has this willful unbelief. Well, many of these, the first generation in the wilderness, had this just blatant grumbling and unbelief. So you, we read even in, in Hebrews, it's like, do not harden your, your hearts as in the rebellion, right? They fell in the wilderness and they did not enter his rest. What you want to be is like that next generation that crossed with Joshua through the Jordan into the promised land. And that was a faithful generation that actually trusted God. And then he's named in here is told to do it seven times. And of course, that's a good biblical number of creation, of new life, and completeness. So you have God's river, which isn't just a boundary for Israel. It's a symbol of their birth as an official nation. And you have the seven times. And of course, Naaman, I guess I wouldn't expect him to understand all this. So this is Naaman's response. Verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, 
I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So again, he's expecting a show here. So he's expecting this important prophet who doesn't even have the gall to come out and meet him face to face. He sends a messenger to come out and do some show where he magically waves his hands over the, over the leper and gets clean. And instead, he actually hears some pretty incredible news. All you have to go is dip in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. That's it. You don't need anything more because, of course, all of the power for this comes from God. And instead of hearing this pretty incredible message for what it is, his, right, his saving from leprosy, he gets mad and he just uh, storms off. So Naaman needs some prompting. Verse 13. But his servants came to him and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophets have spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So thank God for these encouragers around him. And we'll reflect on them in just a minute. But we do want to we want to finish with Naaman. All right, verse fifteen. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, "Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant." But he said, "As the Lord lives, by whom or before whom I stand, I will receive none." And he, that is Naaman, urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. So we see a genuine conversion of Naaman. And I can't help but think, if Elisha did come out and do the pomp and circumstance exactly like he expected, he just would have said, oh, that, you know, that's cool. It, it, it wouldn't have changed his heart the way God intended it. Like a new convert, uh, Naaman, I believe, has genuine faith. I mean, he confesses, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. But like a new convert, he probably has some misconceptions. He hasn't been very well catechized in the worship of Yahweh yet. And back then, uh, it's the way the nations thought about their gods is that each god had his boundaries as well. So the god of Syria was Ramon, and Ramon his boundaries were the boundaries of Syria. So even though Naaman just confesses that I know there's no God in the whole earth but Yahweh, he at the same time still has this framework that, but I need, if I'm going to worship Yahweh, I need his earth. 
So I'm going to take his earth with me back to Syria, which probably ended up actually being a pretty cool witness to everyone else around him. A pretty powerful message. But he didn't have to do that. And we'll see, uh, we'll see Elisha isn't, he doesn't lecture him on, you know, you screwed up the doctrine of, uh, you know, God's omnipresence or something like that. He's, he's gentle with him. Um, so, where were we? Uh, yeah, verse 18. Then he says, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant, so forgive your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, so when the king of Syria goes into the temple of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So what's going on is that he's a new convert, he's excited, he's ready to go, and he wants his dirt to take with him, which is beautiful, and then he realizes, I'm going to live back in the middle of a bunch of pagans. And it's literally my vocation, right, to assist my master in worshiping a false god. And he realizes he's compromised, but he, he has to go back home, and what's he going to do? So he's trying to figure this out, and instead of lecturing him, Elisha says, um, in verse 19, he says to him, go in peace. What's the semblance of the, the two mules of dirt? The two mules of dirt. So I don't think it's the two mules necessarily, as much as um, the dirt itself. So again, the gods had their boundaries, which were the nations. Each god was over that nation. Um, and I won't get into the spiritual side of things, but like the Bible's pretty clear that the spiritual beings, that is the demons, you know, demons exist. <laughs> so I'm not saying there's necessarily a specific demon out there that was Ramon or, you know, Moloch and Baal and all these things, but um, you know, he's at most there, he's thinking like, okay, my spiritual being God, right, is a, here's my boundary. So he thinks Yahweh must have the same, right? The Israelites worship Yahweh in Israel. So he wants to take the ground from Israel so he can put it in his home or outside his home and fence it off, you know, almost like a, a little foreign embassy. <laughs> so he can say, I am on God's turf, the Lord's turf. And I'm going to worship him on the on his turf. So it also would have been a pretty cool witness, I think. So also I wanted to say with Naaman, with the leaning on the arm, it could be even that his job was, if the king was old, to physically help him kneel. You know, so it could be seen in two ways, like a peer pressure sort of deal, like, what do you do, Naaman? What are you doing, Naaman? kneel and worship in the temple. So it could have been along that lines or physically having to help him. But he realizes he's going to be in compromising situations. And instead of lecturing him, Elisha's gentle with him. Because he, right, his, this new faith is genuine. 
Now, Elisha will not be gentle with the Israelites who have fallen away from God, nor will any of the other prophets. You know, he, he would have said to all the Israelites who may some weekends offer a sacrifice to the Lord, but they're also worshiping Baal and Moloch, and they're doing some really wicked things, really, really wicked things in the worship to these other gods. And to them, he says, you can't have a foot in both camp, in both camps. And they wanted to, whereas Naaman would have loved to have both feet, you know, and in fact, when he took that dirt home, I'm sure he did physically put both feet in there and say, I'm worshiping the Lord. Uh, and he probably knew on the way back, I would imagine he was reflecting on all this. And I couldn't imagine that reconciliation with that little girl. Let's say he was responsible for the death of her parents, and she was still willing to minister to this guy, you know, to uh, tell him about the power and the love of the Lord, and to have them reconcile would have been a really cool sight to see. You know, God's grace is surprising sometimes. Nobody, you know, Naaman was on nobody's list to get saved. There was no, like, I'm sure the, uh, the sons of the prophets studying under Elisha, none of them were like, you know, we should raise some money <laughs> to go and send some missionaries to uh, Syria and preach the name of Yahweh so that the generals of their army can come to faith. None of that. The only list he was on was God's list. So now, was, it, was there a question by any chance? No? Okay. But now, uh, I think a helpful thing to do before we see um, Naaman in the New Testament, which is going to be Luke chapter 4, page 860, a helpful thing sometimes to do when you're really meditating on a story is to go through the characters kind of one by one and thinking about their motives and, you know, really who they are, their actions, almost like uh, I heard a, a pastor put it this way, like almost like you're casting a play. So we did that with Naaman, that he was, right, he was a professional, uh, essentially a general, in the army, and he comes to genuine faith. So we've talked about we've talked about Naaman, uh, the little slave girl. I think we captured her pretty well too. She really was capturing the image of God, and we'll talk about this in a minute too. But in the priesthood of all believers, what it means to be a priest is you represent God to the world, and you represent the world to God, right? So uh, as God's representatives, we're called to live Christ-like lives and preach the gospel, right, to the world. And she captures the image of God pretty well. We'll never know exactly how the conversation went down, either before he left or after he came home, but I imagine she was tactful. And she even, here's my favorite part about her, she's bold. And it reminds me of Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the wedding of Canaan for Jesus' first miracle. <laughs> What's Mary do? She volu 
tells Jesus <laughs> for his first miracle, you know, calls him over and like, oh, my son, he'll take care of this, right? And it's sort of the same thing. She just with this bold faith says, Elisha will heal him. Just go. He'll heal him. Uh, so I, I really do. I, you have to admire the faith and the boldness of this little Israelite servant girl. All right, how about the unnamed servants in verse 13? We could spend some time meditating on them. Naaman had heard some incredible news. He just didn't like the way it was presented. He obviously didn't care for Elisha at first because he said, this Elisha guy doesn't even have the gall to come out and see me. I have all this cash and money, right? Like this, these huge gifts coming from a foreign country, like he, he doesn't understand. He's not respecting anybody out here. That's what, you know, I'm sure that's what Naaman thought. He, I'm sure Naaman thought that Elisha was coming off standoffish or holier than thou, things like that. And I can't help but think of people who might say like, you know, I don't do church because growing up I saw all the hypocrites. So I was sort of raised in the church as a kid, but I saw all the hypocrites. I kind of like to joke, well, yeah, guess what? There's enough room in our church for one more hypocrite. You're welcome, you know? because it's through the blood of Christ that we're clean, not because of our own actions. But these servants, they talk some sense into him. They exhort him, and they even rebuke him. And I'm sure they, you know, they do this tactfully. They reassert the message of salvation that he's just heard, and they encourage him to return. So likewise, we may know people in our lives that have heard the good news and have walked away or dragged their feet, fallen away from the church, and let me tell you, the being in the body of Christ with other believers and weekly receiving the literal body and blood of our literal eternal Lord that we can literally take with us, right? Like our body processes the bread and the wine, which is the body and blood of Christ, and it physically becomes a part of us. When people have an attitude that's like, you know, I'm... <laughs> I can have a relationship with God on my own. You can, but what is that saying about, uh, it's bad for you. I don't know what else to say. Like, it's bad not to be in the body, right? It's important. It's the eternal body and blood of your Lord. And being in the body of Christ, it's good for your soul. I mean, priorities here, right? Now, we can do that with tact, and we ought to. But that's kind of what these servants do. They talk some sense into him tactfully. We should also be like Elisha, of course. Uh, we also have a message of salvation and a message of being free from uncleanliness. And although we may not be prophets just like Elisha, you know, we are, we are priests of God who have been called to represent him into the world. So let's do that as well. Now, who not to be like? The king, of course. Uh, king Joram, he saw the miracles accomplished through Elisha. And he probably heard of Elisha's other water miracle, because this is actually the third water miracle that Elisha will do. Uh, I don't remember the order of the first two, but he provides the water 
in the wilderness to the armies of Israel and Judah to give them victory over Edom. And then he heals the waters of Jericho, just like Moses healed the waters, the bitter waters, so that the Israelites could have drink in the wilderness. And then he heals Naaman in the, in the Jordan. So Joram, he has seen the greatness of the God and how God has provided for him and his people and done these miraculous things yet. And he even had Elisha in his city. It's not like he didn't know who Elisha was. It's not like he hadn't heard Elisha's preaching. Yet he refuses to believe and trust in God, even though it was right in front of him. And guess what? Joram, several chapters later, he gets wounded in a battle against Syria. And for all we know, Naaman was still a general of Syria, right? So he gets wounded in that battle, which leads to a series of events while he's recovering in his assassination. <laughs> so when he says, am I God to kill and make alive? It's almost as if he's ironically prophesying his own doom. Uh, and again, when he quotes Deuteronomy 32, it is, it's a chapter all about, you know, God's promise to save his people. And it ends with a warning about unbelief. And Deuteronomy was preached by Moses to that next generation right before they go into the promised land. So it's also a reminder of, you know how your fathers, they saw the incredible things God had done for them and provided for them again and again and again, and all they could do was complain and say, we want to go back to Egypt and be slaves. Which is kind of ironic with us as well, if we're paralleling ourselves with the Israelites, because every time we sin, <laughs> You know, it's like us saying, oh, we want to go back to our slavery to sin. But thanks be to God, of course, right? Living as a Christian is living in dichotomy that we are both sinner and saint. And when God looks at us because of grace through faith, he doesn't see our sin. He sees perfect cleanliness because of the death and resurrection of his son. So those are the characters. And now... We're going to go to the New Testament. We're going to go to uh, Luke chapter 4. Now, Luke chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 18, it's early in Jesus' ministry. So right before this, Jesus gets baptized, where else but the Jordan River, and he goes into the wilderness to get tempted by the devil, and then he goes back to Nazareth. And in Nazareth, uh, he quickly asserts himself as, as a teacher. And the people seem to like him at first, at least. And the reading for that day, this comes from uh, Isaiah 61. So starting at 18, Jesus gets up in front of the synagogue and he reads this from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now, anointed, the word Messiah is the Hebrew word for the anointed one. The Greek version of that is Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, uh, the word Christ is the Greek, just the Greek word for anointed one. So Messiah 
and Christ the same thing. So you, you kind of need to know that when you're reading, especially Isaiah, and you see this anointed language, it's literally Messiah language. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, which is why they, you know, there's, there's this idea that the Messiah would be his unique miracle among many, many, many. If, if the just probably thousands of miracles that Jesus did wasn't enough, the restoring of the sight of the blind, actually John the Baptist, when Jesus sends messengers to John the Baptist, so that basically all John the Baptist's disciples will follow him, Jesus gives them a riddle, and it's, tell John the Baptist, right, like the, the lame are walking and the, the blind are receiving their sight, and it's this Messiah language. All right, so, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So this is where Jesus straight up tells them in only slightly coded language, I'm the Messiah. You know, that's what's going on beneath the text. And he began to speak to them, to Oh yeah, today the scripture has been fulfilled. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. I kind of feel like this is out of place in this text, like physician, heal yourself. What? Well, you might recall on the cross, what do the people you know, what, what do some of the Pharisees say to him? If you are the Christ, come down off the cross and heal yourself. Continuing, what we had heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So Elijah only went, right, to a Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So again, you know, we just read this story, crawled through it. The only one that was saved was a pagan general who led raids against Israel. Um, and this is nothing new. In the Old Testament, it is packed with stories of, of uh, how the gospel message of salvation is not just for the people of Israel. It was always for everybody. And we're, we're going to see that in just a minute, too, when we bounce back to cover the priesthood of all believers. All right, but verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill, of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could 
throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. So again, he uses Naaman as the example of how God's message of salvation is meant for the whole world, the Gentiles too. And if they had understood the Old Covenant, if they had actually read Isaiah, and we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 49, if they had actually read that and understood it, then they would have, under, they would have expected the inclusion of the Gentiles, again, because it was God's plan all along. So we'll go to First uh, Exodus 19. I'm just going to read a couple verses. If you want to go there, you can. Exodus 19, verse 4. This is where God makes a covenant with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. After they're baptized through the Red Sea, they have a water crisis or two. We saw Jesus at the rock, right, where Moses strikes the rock and you get the water. Bread from heaven, that's in between there as well. And then they make, after seeing all of those things, they make this covenant with God. Verse 4, God speaking, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. So you will be my treasured possession, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So all the earth is mine. And we could talk about that treasured possession word as well. In Hebrew, it's segala. And I'm pretty convinced this gets really nerdy. But in, old, uh, in the ancient world at this time, covenants between uh, different entities, not, you know, not complete. Obviously, this covenant is greater because it's God himself making the covenant with the Israelites. But covenants at that time, uh, the word segala could also kind of refer to the, like, the representative of the person enacting the covenant. So it's this, it does refer to the treasured possession, but it's also like, I won't go too deep into it, <laughs> but anyway, it's even more of this representation language, just like how the little servant girl really captures the image of God. Then in 1 Peter chapter 2, after this is a, Christ has uh, died and risen from the dead. This is the Apostle Peter writing to uh, a mix of Jews and Gentiles in the early church. 1 Peter 2, chapter, er, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And again, you know, who's Peter writing to? There's no official nation here. They have no king but Jesus, and that's the point, right? That it, it, it's King Jesus and his kingdom transcends all the boundaries of all the nations of the world. And why are we his royal priesthood? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the purpose of this is, right, there, I think there's two main parts, right, two main realms to witnessing. One is actually sharing the, the gospel with words of Christ crucified and risen again for the forgiveness of sins and all that good stuff. And the other is living the way that, like, what half the New Testament is about. You know, it's like Paul exhorting his people, now that you have been saved by grace through faith, strive to actually do these things so that others may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And again, if they uh, if the people at Jesus' time had, were reading it properly, <laughs> unlike the Pharisees who had this, like, willful disobedience, uh, in, or this willful, blatant, unbelief. I actually think that Caiaphas, at Jesus' trial, he knew exactly what was going on. I think he absolutely knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but he had the same, a worse attitude even than Jonah, right? Jonah knew he was being sent by God to minister to the Ninevites, and he knew God, and he knew the Ninevites, it was Assyria, right? Syria. So he hated these people. He didn't want them to be saved. That's why Jonah doesn't want to go. And he says, send somebody else. I get you're going to do it, but it can't be me. So he's mad at God's plan, right? And I think Caiaphas is kind of the same way. He has seen the miracles, just like Joram did, except times a thousand. And he has this willful, blatant disobedience and unbelief. But if he had read Isaiah chapter 49, starting at verse 6, this is the, uh, it's so beautiful. And Pastor Poland had an epic sermon on this, by the way, several months ago. So he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. It is too light a thing that the message of God would have only been for Israel and Judah. And today it is too light a thing that this message of Christ we have, that is just free forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins, it is too light a thing to keep that here in this church at faith. Because it's for everybody, right? So just like the little servant girl and just like Naaman's, um, Naaman's servants who urge him to go back, you know, whatever realm we're in, it is too light a thing to keep it for ourselves. And I think, you know, witnessing and evangelism there's tact to this, don't get me wrong, you know, like, we ought to practice. I ran over this once or twice, you know, before tonight. Uh, so there is, there is being in the Word, right, and, and praying about it and, and all this, but at the same time, right, it is too light a thing for us to keep it to ourselves. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised and by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, 
the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. On the last day, everyone we know is going to, or and has ever met, including Osama bin Laden and that guy who gunned it when I was trying to pass him, <laughs> they're all going to bow their knee to King Jesus. But not all of them are going to get ushered into the kingdom of God. And it's too light a thing for us to allow that to happen. So, in closing, uh, here's a good cheesy analogy, right? Take your dirt, <laughs> just like Naaman, take your dirt and take it with you. So the dirt that proverbially, right, Faith Lutheran Church and the whole Christian church on earth that has the keys to the kingdom of heaven, that has this gospel message, we have to take our dirt. And in a world that seems to become increasingly more pagan, even when I was a kid, the world, you know, Christians aren't getting burned at the stake. You know, we're not there yet. But, but in a world that is increasingly openly hostile to the gospel message, that like this, right, abhors the idea that they need a sinner, or that they are a sinner and they need a savior, even though it's a great message. It's a great message, you know? You're a sinner. Jesus literally does everything for you, so believe in him. That's it, you know? It's not, but the world finds even the slightest bit of, of, uh, of, of God, you know, just recognizing that you're a sinner and you need a savior as one of the greatest insults that they can possibly hear. The world hates this, even though it's a great message. So, yeah, take your dirt. And some of you might work among a bunch of pagans. Uh, and I, you know, in Texas also, it's still, you know, I, as far as American culture goes, I like Texas. But it's, uh, we all know people too. Maybe it's your children that are out there in the world being pressured that they have this proverbial, right, leaning on their arm, trying to get them to bow to Ramon. And remember, right, there's tact to this. We should pray for wisdom. In fact, I have four, four pieces of advice on how to handle this. And trust me, I am, I'm in this as with everybody else. I don't have the magic bullet to, uh, to making all the world repent and restore Christendom on earth before Jesus comes back. But here's four things. Pray about it. Pray for wisdom. And actually pray in such a way that you believe your prayers make a difference. Uh, Jesus says pray continually. You know, sometimes, growing up, I felt like the textbook answer in the, you know, in all my Sunday school stuff, the, the right answer was, okay, yeah, we should pray all the time, but remember, God knows what you need before you ask. Okay, that's true, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't fiercely pray, and when necessary, pray the imprecatory psalms, that God would destroy evil. Yes, we want all people to repent, but we also want him to stop the bleeding and vindicate his people. So pray about it, and then look for wisdom in the Word of God. So it's imperative that we're in the Word, and it's imperative that we encourage 
all Christians we know, to daily be in the Word. One easy thing that I love, um, there is, it's, the book is The Treasury of Daily Prayer, um, and they have an app, and it's called Pray Now, and it's a good way to keep me honest to being in the Word every day. So there's an Old Testament reading, or sorry, there's a Psalm, an Old Testament reading, and a New Testament reading, and then there's a writing, either from a church father or something from the catechism. But you need to be praying, you need to be in the Word, and then you need to seek encouragement and wisdom from other faithful Christians. So maybe you, a friend, you know, a son or daughter is in a compromising situation, and it's imperative that we seek wisdom and encouragement from one another. And then lastly here, and this can be a dangerous one, but seek not to violate your conscience. Now, if your conscience isn't bothered by soliciting prostitutes, okay, that's a problem. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but at the same time, if your conscience, based on the word of God, is being violated in, uh, in what you have to do, maybe even at your job, you know, what you have to subscribe to, do the first three things, ask for wisdom, and maybe it is time to look for something else, you know, that you can do. But before we end in prayer, uh, I guess first I'd, I'd ask any, any comments or questions. Well, the, the implications is, is a difficult thing, but if you read the note to Psalm 510, it talks exactly about that. Because we're not asking... I can't ask God to, hey, smite Osama bin Laden and that guy and that guy, wipe him off the face of the earth. There are places in, in the Bible that talk about that, but I don't have a right to do that. What I'm doing is, they're not imprecations. We're asking God, please, like you said, stop the evil. Do it your way. I'm not telling you how yeah. to do it. You do it because you know I have no right to tell you how to do it. I but please do stop it. Yeah, that, that's a very good way to put it. Like, stop what they are doing, and I trust your wisdom, right, and your divine plan in this. So like on the last day, I'm not praying that God cast all the wicked into the lake of fire. That's not your job. But it's not my job to do that, but we will, as intense as that's gonna be, we will be saying, alleluia, that God has vindicated the church and that even though Jesus is already king of the, of the universe, that, that all of creation will recognize it when all things are made new. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for your word and uh, for this week of Vacation Bible School. We ask that you bless all the children here, that they all may see Christ, um, and, and your many blessings. We thank you for the gift of water. We thank you that it sustains us. And even more so, we thank you for your sacrament of baptism, where you baptized us into his death so that just as Christ is risen from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We ask that you empower us to go forth as your priests and your representatives to live Christ-like lives that are seen by the world and that they may glorify you in heaven. And we also ask that you 
put a fire in us through the Holy Spirit that we may daily remember that it is too light a thing to keep our faith comfortable to ourselves and uh, to help us through words and actions to be a light to the nation. We thank you most of all for your son Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. In his name we pray, amen.